Hello and welcome to episode 155 of the Fertility Podcast. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host. If this is your first visit to the Fertility Podcast, welcome. And I really hope that you'll spend a bit of time having a listen to some other episodes. I speak to experts all around the world as well as people sharing their stories. I'm based in the UK. You can probably tell by my accent. Um, and this episode is about an event happening in the UK. It's about the Fertility Show, which is a big London-based and Manchester-based show in a big exhibition hall where loads of fertility clinics and other um, organisations within the fertility industry, from charities to people offering products and advice, get together over a weekend and people come and visit the show to find out more. Now, it is overwhelming. There's a lot of information there, but the best advice I can give is to make a plan and have some goals in your head as to what you want to achieve from the day. If you're just starting out on realizing that you need help with your fertility, then this is something that you know you should maybe think about going to a show like this if you can. Now, what you're gonna hear is three different voices talking to you about why they think you should come to the show and explaining more about the type of content and people and information that you'll be able to get. So if you're wondering whether the show is for you, if you've maybe been before and are wondering whether to go again, or if you aren't in the UK, but you know of shows where you are and you're wondering whether you should go to them, then this will give you some good pointers as to whether it is for you. Hi, I'm Aileen Feeney, and I'm really proud to be the Chief Executive of Fertility Network UK. So let's talk about Fertility Network UK's involvement in the show for people who haven't been before. So we're really proud that we are the charity partners for the Fertility Show. And what that means is that we work with the organisers of the Fertility Show to help them develop the programme, to set up the seminar program so that it really really provides patients with the information and topics that they want to hear about and they want to talk about. Because for people who may not have heard of Fertility Network UK you are the UK's main fertility support charity helping people navigate their way through the different decisions you have to make when you realise you're dealing with infertility aren't you? That's right. So, yeah, we support people as they, they go through all of their fertility journey, actually from teaching or educating people about their future fertility through the journey of any um, fertility challenges they have. And we do that by providing support groups, providing information, information via our website and on an information line and a support line right the way through to if they go through their fertility journey and are unable to have a child, um, we support them um, via a group called More to Life. So for people coming to the fertility show to, in essence, what is an exhibition hall on something that is such a sensitive issue can seem terrifying. And I've spoken to people who have talked about the whole just getting their head around it, the overwhelm of it all. What advice would you give? So I think that's a really good word to describe it. It can be very overwhelming and very, very daunting. Um, and what we would say to people is have an idea of the topics that you want to and the information that you want to find out about. There are lots and lots of seminars and question and answer sessions and exhibitors at the fertility show. Have a look at the programme before you go. Decide which of the seminar programmes are most appropriate and important to you. And then design your day around that. Go in with a really open mind. Ask lots and lots of questions. 
and also remember that we as charity we are there to support you you're not alone we will provide you any help practical help and emotional help that we can and we can direct you to where we think is probably the most appropriate place for you and people for you to speak to as well and what kind of concerns or queries do you have from people as they're walking around seeing all these different places and people to talk to? What we can do is we can help them with practical information as to best place. So, for example, if somebody is thinking about donor conception, we can point them to the right places to speak to people about that. You know, specialist topics. We can also help them if they've been to see somebody and they're a little bit confused, maybe don't quite understand exactly what they've been told. So we can either help them ourselves or again we can point them to somebody else that might have perhaps a different focus on the same topic or some independent information that might help. And do people come back to you having done a circuit with other concerns or queries about things they might have found out? Oh yeah I mean lots of people will already have been to perhaps one or two clinics and um, one or two experts or, or providers of different information and services and, and essentially what the fertility show allows you to do if you want to is just go around and compare lots of different information from lots and lots of people and that is good but can equally be confusing and so we would say to you don't go and make any rash decisions um, on the day go in and use the opportunity to gather as much information and ask as many questions as you can. Because I think it's also really important to explain that there's different ways people can have these conversations with you, aren't there? You have quiet rooms, there's counsellors there. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So we do have, we have a quiet room that's dedicated for our use only. And if people are upset, maybe they're a little bit, as we said, you know, overwhelmed by the whole day, we can take them into the quiet room. They can get completely away from everybody. We can shut the door you can be on your own for as long as you want and be in that just that quiet room to give yourself some space the other place this year we're introducing a lounge which is um, sponsored by the lovely ladies from IVF Babble and that area will be manned with counsellors and it's basically it's a quiet environment where you can go and sit down get away from all the hustle and bustle of the exhibitors and we'll also have panels of experts doing questions and answers inside that area as well so that should be a, a, a really good place to go to learn more and perhaps have some more interactive discussions with experts. I mean the whole aspect of support is something I talk about a lot on this podcast and all too often people don't ask for the help early enough. Is that something that you would advise that it's it's never too soon to get support in dealing with all of this? Absolutely not no as a charity we, we support people right the way through their fertility journey before they even know that they may have potential problems by by educating them about their future fertility. But I think the most important message for people is you are not alone. One in six couples in the UK today are affected by infertility. So that's three and a half million people. So as you look around your, you know, your colleagues, the people that live in the same street as you, there will be other people that are going through the same journey as you are. And it helps everybody to speak about that. And you can then share, and, and it's not a taboo subject, we want, we want to encourage everybody to be able to speak openly and learn from others around them. 
Now, Fertility Network UK is currently running its campaign, Scream for IVF, to try and get uh, equal access to three rounds of treatment on the NHS due to the postcode lottery in the UK. What kind of support and information can you give people if they're coming to the show having found that they are in an area where funding has been cut? Well, we can give them some general information. We can help them find out what they are entitled to in the area that they live. And if, unfortunately, they have either used their entitlement up or or they aren't if they or they live in an area where they aren't actually entitled to anything we can help them write to their MP to, to, to raise the awareness of the issue. We can help them write to their CCGs to see if there is any way to get some um, additional funding for them as an individual. And we can help them with their other options. And do you feel that people are getting better at talking about this? I mean, we know there's amazing communities on social media and I have more people willing to share their stories with me. But as you're stood at the front of that big hall and people are walking in, do you feel that they're more willing to talk about where they're at, what's going on with them? I absolutely think that that the people are overcoming the taboo and more and more people are talking about it. You mentioned our recent campaign, Scream for IVF. That's had a, a fabulous response with thousands and thousands of people signing the petition and just being much more open about talking about fertility. And we have many more people coming to our website and coming to our support groups and following us, uh, being in dialogue with us on our social media. So absolutely. But we can still do more. We can still help more people. We can still help each other. And again, come back to the phrase, you are not alone. So just finally, for anybody who's still not sure whether or not to come to the show, they're, they're still on the fence. What would your advice be? I think it's that unique opportunity. There are so many people, so many sources of information that are available to you in one place it would take weeks and weeks to go around all the various clinics talk you know go around all the websites and go talking to other other providers so it is a unique opportunity to get all of that in one day now it's time for my next guest an expert in male fertility issues my name is professor alan pacey and I go by the title of Professor of Andrology at the University of Sheffield. Now, Alan is going to be speaking at the Fertility Show uh, on Sunday. He's doing a session at 12.45 explaining about male fertility, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast. We know that it uh, is as significant in the conversation when you're trying to conceive. It's a 50-50 issue, male-female factor, and I think it's something that always needs to be talked about more. So, one of the kind of starting points of what you're going to be talking about is how men can test it. So what kind of things um, can can they be aware of, Alan? Well, the audience at the Vitality Show is, is interesting because uh, over the years I've learned that men are a bit reluctant to engage with some of this stuff and they, they often get dragged there kicking and screaming by their by their partners. So my job in that talk is, I think, to try and deliver some basic messages to men about what they might expect when they go to a fertility specialist and what tests might be done and what they might mean. Now some of them in the audience will have already done that but a substantial number haven't and what I want to try and do in that talk is to get men to recognise that they are part of the issue and the solution and that they um, they need to engage with this. And from the experience that you've had of those kind of conversations, are men 
aware or are they coming in quite surprised that you know the issue could be with them and that there is proactive measures that they can take i think it's a mixture so some men who have already gone down the journey with their partners are aware that they may have a fertility issue but for some others it is a surprise and so it's it's a mixture that's why it's a difficult talk to give because you're talking to men at different stages of the journey. It it never ceases to surprise me the questions that I am asked during and after that talk. And so uh, I would encourage any man, regardless of whether they think they know it all um, and they've, they've you know, been to, tested to the nth degree to still come along because, it, you know, often the, I say something and the penny drops and it op- opens up a whole new um, conversation uh, with men. So, um, you know, if you're going to go to one talk at the Fertility Show um, and you have a male factor infertility issue or you suspect you might, come along to this one. Let's just talk about some of the kind of initial tests. If people are just coming to the show, they're not sure, maybe they've been trying for a bit and, you know, they, they, they're not not having any success and so they're keen to understand whether it could be the guy or the girl what, what are those tests as a starting point well i mean i think the basic test is to is to understand the history just something as basic as are the couple having regular sex is there any issue in the in the sex life are the men ejaculating properly do they understand about the fertile window there are some tensions here that i try and explore in a very very nice way because i i often I'm aware that couples are sometimes coming at the, this fertility journey with slightly different experiences and slightly different expectations. For example, um, women are far more aware of the fertile window than men are, but often women can put men off the act of having sex by being a little too um, demanding and, and, and perhaps not being subtle about the, the need to have sex. Most men are quite prepared to have sex but there are issues of performance anxiety and issues of of, of um, whether or not they want to do it um, when when they're being texted at three texted at three in the afternoon because she's just discovered she's in the middle of ovulation. So um, there are all those things to, to discuss. Now, if there's nothing obviously wrong there, then we need to start thinking about how we might medicalise things a little bit. In terms of looking at a sample of semen down the microscope, in terms of having some blood taken to look at the hormones, and then really taking it from there if a problem is identified. So in the talk, I, try, I, I kind of try and take people through these different steps and, and, and try and cover the bases f- for people that are at different points in the journey because you don't want to be talking about surgical sperm recovery to people who just have a, a hint that there may be a male fertility issue in their relationship and in their pregnancy journey. So it's, it's a case of trying to carefully navigate all the various options that they may have encountered or they may be needing to encounter in the next few next weeks or months. What do you feel about home testing kits if guys are just really embarrassed about it and find the whole fact that they've been t- dragged to the show, let's say, just too much to get their head around? Yeah, home, t- home testing kits have their place. Um, they're not a substitute for a professional test in, a, in a, an accredited laboratory. But I've always taken the view that, you know, if you've got the money to spare and you want to do it in the privacy of your own home and it gets you engaged with 
with the process and it gives you a hint as to what might be going on, then by all means buy one and try one. They're actually quite good, to be honest with you. They don't spot everything, but they will spot some of the major issues with sperm. Now, the key is not to then take that test and wave it in front of the GP's nose and say, look, we think we've got a problem. It's a case of then going with the partner to the GP and having a discussion and then arranging for the proper test to be done. I've spent 25 years in the testing business and every man that walks through the door thinks he's the first man to ever walk through the door. And if a home sperm testing kit can help him realise you know, that, that this is a common thing, then I think it will have done its job. Now, we know that, as we've said, people coming to the fertility show are going to be at all different stages. So if there has been some issue identified, I know you're going to be talking as well about what men can do to, to boost their fertility, increase their sperm health. What, what types of things should they be thinking about as far as lifestyle, environmental issues? The sad thing is that for most male fertility issues there's probably very little we can do to change the situation all we can do is get a workaround to the problem and what i mean by that is use one of our various techniques to recover sperm and then use them in the laboratory in a process called ICSI to help fertilize the partner's eggs now the key is if that's what you need then that's what you need. But in the interim, there are many things that men can potentially do to improve their sperm quality ever so slightly that just might mean that we can avoid ICSI completely and they may conceive naturally. Now, um, to understand what men can do, we need to understand a little bit about how sperm are produced. And the number of sperm that can be produced by a man per unit time is set by how his body is constructed it's set by the size of his testicles let me let me be blunt and what men do every day of their lives is potentially do things that make those testicles work less efficiently so it's a case really of identifying all the bad things that a man may be exposed to and a, and a big one there is heat so men wearing underpants that are too tight or men working in occupations where there's a, a significant amount of testicular heating or men sitting down too long all day make the testicles work less efficiently. So if there's the ability in a man's life to change that, i.e. stand up, walk around, wear loose pants, that kind of thing, then it is just possible that we might be able to improve the sperm production process enough to either avoid ICSI or to prevent him having to go down that route in the first place. Another thing is, is diet. Um, so we know that sperm are sensitive to things called free radicals. Free radicals are produced by the body quite naturally. But in the situation where the man doesn't have enough antioxidant capacity in his uh, testicles then sperm can become damaged and we know from various studies that if you are able to increase the amount of antioxidants going into a man's body usually through food um, through uh, fruit and vegetables 
then you can improve sperm quality to a measurable degree. And again, that might be something that men could think of doing in order to improve their sperm health. The key with all of this is to remember that it takes about three months to produce a sperm from start to finish. So eating more fruit and vegetables on Friday isn't going to improve the situation by Monday. Um, but if you start doing it in October, you might have improved the situation by Christmas. Just going back on the heat point, is there any proof yet about mobile phones in pockets and laptops on laps not being good? I think most of the evidence that we have about heat comes from underpant wearage studies and that's where you simply ask men whether they wear wear tight pants or or loose pants and there have been several studies um, that have looked at that. Uh, recently. In terms of mobile phones, I think the data is less clear. In terms of laptops, I think the data is less clear, except just feel the underside of a laptop the next time you have used one and just feel how hot it is. So it wouldn't surprise me if a laptop wasn't a risk if you're using it on your lap for several hours a day. The sensible thing, put it on a table. And we talked about kind of diet and a a lot of women go really into it, trying to be really good with what they eat and they don't drink. And and we know that smoking doesn't help, but I know that you've talked about smoking and drinking not necessarily having the impact on sperm health that we might think. Smoking, um, yeah, I would advise men not to smoke. Um, it, It probably doesn't alter the number of sperm that are produced but it does alter their quality so chemicals in cigarette smoke um, can chop up the DNA and cause problems with the DNA and you really don't want that in your sperm if you're trying to conceive drinking you know there's no reason to become a monk there's no reason to become abstemious Um, I think if you're drinking within guidelines a glass of wine for dinner uh, a beer when you get home from work I don't think there's any major problems there Um, in terms of food I don't think there's any reason to go crackers I don't think there's any one food that's better than the other But I think we do fundamentally know what a balanced diet is. And I think we do know that we should already be eating five portions of fruit and veg a day. Some people say seven. And we know that the sperm quality of men who have more Mediterranean-style diets is much, much better than men uh, who have diets of processed foods and burgers and lots of bacon sandwiches. There's nothing wrong with a bacon sandwich, but it should be part of a of a big balanced diet and and I think that's the the nudge that men sometimes need is to recognize that they just need to be a bit healthier. So talking about the show and the talk that you give and your experience from previous years of the kind of conversations that you're having with people are there any common themes are you finding that men are more forthcoming to come and talk about it? Um, Very often the conversation I have with people is a conversation led by the woman holding a copy of his test results asking me for an opinion um, with the man kind of cowering a couple of steps behind not really wanting to hear him being discussed like that and also not really wanting uh, to kind of face up to it but yet close enough because he wants to hear what I have to say. I suspect that I'm describing there the male condition and uh, it, it is getting slightly better uh, better if you like men are slightly more likely to engage with this issue than they were probably 10 or 15 years ago because that's how long I've been doing this at the fertility show Um, but I think we've still got a long way to go Um, and I think there's a lesson there for women there's a lesson there for men and I I, I think um, 
it's a difficult conversation, isn't it? And I think, um, you know, we just need to be a bit bolder about talking about it and, and just recognise that this is another part of healthcare. It isn't a threat to masculinity. And what would your advice be if people are coming to the show? Maybe they've already started having treatment. Maybe they're coming having had failed treatment and they, they want to explore new clinics. And time and time again, I do hear from men feeling ignored um, in the fertility clinic environment, maybe overlooked by the consultant. What advice would you give to guys who do feel like they're a bystander yeah I, I i hear that i see that i've witnessed that i in to some extent i've been part of that i did run in sheffield for for 25 years male focused um clinics so uh, you know i know i know we can do things differently i think the show can be incredibly bamboozling i think the show can be incredibly intense um it is quite a a a a, a, a forceful experience when those lift doors open and you first walk onto the floor Uh, and I think you know it's perhaps understandable that many men kind of withdraw slightly I think I would I would take a deep breath and I would jump in with both feet and I would there's there is the ability to get too much information there I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest anybody makes any rash decisions when they're there during the course of their visit to the show, but I think collecting the information, having the opportunity to have some quality conversations with with professionals, but also perhaps some side conversations with with professionals away from the hustle and bustle of of the main um, uh, exhibition floor space is a good thing a good thing to do. There is at the show, if I could give a plug, a professional society stand. And that's organisations like the British Fertility Society, um, the Association of Clinical Embryologists, uh, and these are professionals who've given up their weekend to come to the show and just be there to answer questions and allow people to get a sense of balance given all the information that will have been thrown at them as they walk around the clinics uh, and, and all the various stands. So I think... You know, just take a deep breath before you walk through those doors. Don't make any rash decisions, but do use this as an opportunity to have some quality time, if you can, with some professionals, because there's some great minds and some great people going to be there. And thank you, of course, to Alan. And I'll put his details in the show notes, too, if you want to find out more about what he does, his research and the information that Alan shares uh, relating to male fertility issues. Before my final guest, a few messages from my sponsors who I'm so thankful for for supporting me to make this podcast possible. As you know, we've been talking about the fertility show, so I want to make sure you've got all the details of when it's happening. It's on the 3rd and 4th of November at Olympia in London and is open to anyone struggling with fertility issues or wanting to start a family. You can meet experts face-to-face, attend the brilliant seminars by leading fertility specialists and get your questions answered at the Let's Talk Fertility stage. Visit thefertilityshow.co.uk for more information. If you're looking for a supplement to take whilst trying to conceive, Pregnacare Conception and Wellman Conception provide advanced nutritional support. They include zinc, vitamin D and the exact levels of folic acid recommended for women by the UK Department of Health. Pregnacare is expert nutritional care while trying for a baby. And to find out more, visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash shop. And now for my final guest talking about donor conception. My name is Nina Barnsley. I'm director of the Donor Conception Network. Nina is going to be speaking at the Fertility Show on the Saturday. Uh, her talk is at 3.45, talking about decision-making and openness and, and I suppose the different ways that you can build your family. And Nina, 
Being at something like the fertility show, you've got a whole range of people at very different stages of their journeys coming to talk to you. What kind of conversations have you had with people about where they're at in their journeys when they come to talk to you at the show? We've had some fantastic conversations. I mean, over the years, we can see a pattern in the sort of questions that people come to us with. I think they often find our stand a bit of a, a respite in the maelstrom of, of fertility clinics, which can feel a little bit overwhelming for most people. It's a very busy day, a busy show. And although our stand is busy because we're, we're a small charity and it's it's really all about connections and contact with people and, and very personal, intimate conversations, I think that can be quite a nice balance to the more treatment-led conversations at, at the other stands. And I think that, you know, the people coming to our stand will be considering sperm donation or egg donation or embryo donation. And they're often feeling very confused about whether this is going to be right for them. They, they don't really know perhaps what they need to consider because there is an awful lot to consider. And people who are struggling with fertility issues do have a, a difficult process to navigate all those decisions. And they are often not sure whether this is right for them. They may not even know whether it's right generally, you know, if, if this is, is this an okay way to make a family? And then if they are thinking more seriously about this as an option, then whether how, how are they going to explain this? How, how are they going to explain to themselves, to their friends and family, to any child that might come into their lives, what they're doing and make sense of it in a way that that's positive and part of a, a bigger family story. And and those are the sort of conversations that we, we have on the stand with with all sorts of people, all sorts of family situations. Because from the conversations I've had with people who have reached the point where they need to consider whether it be donor sperm or donor egg or indeed donor embryos, the whole process of accepting that this is your next step is, is something that can't be rushed can it? Because you do need to get your head around it. And for example, one couple that I spoke to when they were having to choose their sperm donor, the lady was saying how, you know, she was looking for her perfect sperm donor when he was sat in the same room as her. And so overcoming that element of, you know, your ideal is quite a hard one as well to, to, to really work out in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people once they've had children would say this was very much a, a, a plan B, a second choice, but it absolutely isn't second best. And that's that's the sort of distinction to make it. You know, it's unusual for people to choose this as their first option. There, there are people who know that they're going to need to use a donor from very early on in their lives. And for those people, actually, this road can be just full of positivity and excitement uh, because they thought perhaps they would never be able to have children and suddenly there's this there's this this wonderful opportunity but for most heterosexual couples certainly it's very much a, a second choice but not second best because also whilst it seems like a huge part of this process this decision to to use a donor ultimately when you get the outcome that you hope for which is uh, a baby this part of it is almost not that it's insignificant but the child whilst you're going to be able to talk to them about how they were going to be, it's quite unlikely that they're going to be in any way affected by it. You've had really positive feedback and you've done research into families from from donors, haven't you? We haven't done any actual research. Oh, this is something we'd really love to do, but, um, but we certainly we're aware of research projects that are being done and have been done. Um, <clears throat> I think probably a more, uh, a more accurate way of, of of presenting it is that um, that there there can be issues that come up for parents for children after they've had after they've gone on conceived, um, 
it's not that 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 suddenly everything gets resolved when a baby arrives but that what what we notice is that that people who have put a lot of time and thought into preparing for what they're doing and really make conscious and positive decisions um, they're able to perhaps integrate all of that into the story that they tell to friends and family and to the child and so that that gets sort of woven in to mean that it's this is a the 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 framework for this information is different when you have people who who's perhaps rush into decision plow forward with treatment get pregnant and have a child um they can sometimes not always but sometimes have to do that work afterwards so they're making sense of it once the child's already here and they're trying to work out how to make sense of the decisions and choices that they've made because they're you know they're they're significant things like where you're going to go for treatment what country you're having treatment in who the donor is and how you choose that even down to actually is this really right for me or for us um and and there needs to be a little pause to think through some of those things and the implications for yourself and also for your child of those decisions. And as, as I said, if people can do that beforehand, it obviously makes the whole process of then raising this family more straightforward because because you've thought you've thought about some of these things and you've got answers to some of those questions that may come up. And one of the reasons that I wanted to talk with you about you being at the fertility show, as I said at the start, is that people come to the show at all different stages and if people have come to the fertility show having had failed treatment and the honest kind of conversations they're having is they're not sure whether they want to go down the routes they've gone previously and maybe the donor route is where they're at the support available from donor conception network with the charity as a whole but your kind of online community with all the resources you've got there is something that I really wanted to make sure people were aware of yes and I think um, I think that that move from using your own eggs or sperm to moving to, to donor eggs and sperm you know it can be a very difficult shift but actually once you're there there is an awful lot of support that's available and lots of contact with other families, with other children. Um, as you say, we've got lots of resources. We've got books, uh, books for children, books for adults, books for friends and family, and all of the uh, we've got workshops and uh, and a network of, of, of people that just mean that you can build that foundation of, of knowledge and, and experience to mean that you can hopefully move forward very confidently. You're right, people do come at, with different stages. Often people are right at the very early stages and still very confused about what to do. Um, and they arrive at the fertility show looking for answers. And some people come and they, you know, they know they're going to go forward with this, this option. They've perhaps even made some of the decisions already, but they just want, they just want to be reassured that, that this is going to be okay. And that, this is a well-trodden path rather than something that nobody's done before and nobody knows what the outcomes might be. And in the talk that you're giving, you're talking about how to tell a child about their genetic origin. So you can give advice if people are looking to go abroad rather than have a donor from, from the UK. Absolutely, because I think uh, what, what people forget is that our organisation was founded 25 years ago. And at that time, all donors were anonymous. There was no prospect of that ever changing. There was no sort of DNA testing that potentially sort of e exposing these genetic family secrets and links the the principle of openness there, there are two separate issues so one is 
a, a principle of, of honesty, being able to be confident and comfortable about explaining the truth to a child about how they were conceived at the point that feels right for you. This is not, you know, not to put pressure on people uh, in terms of timing or how to do it. We, we help people navigate that for themselves. But that is different to information about who the donor is and what they are, what they're like and how you might have contact with them. So that's a separate issue. So who the donor is might be somebody's brother. You know, it might be a family member who's donated. It might be a uh, somebody through a you know, sperm donor or an egg donor through a clinic where there's not much information now. But once the child reaches 18, they can have more information and possibly contact through to a completely anonymous egg donor in Spain who it's unlikely that there'll be possibilities for for easy easy access for 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 contact and information sharing that's a sort of stage two the who the donor is but the first part really is just about about being upfront and clear about about how a child was conceived so that so that we, you don't get into a situation where that information is ex, is 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 exposed un, unexpectedly and in an unplanned way that can be very unsettling for a, for a child or a young person or indeed an adult and can be very disruptive for the family the sort of unplanned unexpected disclosure is sort of our worst case scenario in a way we you know even if telling is done late if it's done in a planned and well thought through way it can be very successful and have a very positive outcome yes i would try and separate those two things so the openness and the being able to share the story of how a child was conceived separate to who the donor is and what information there's available about them and I'm right in saying that with that sharing the story, you can give advice on how to help your family get their heads around it as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sometimes, you know, families are very different. Sometimes people are very comfortable with being open with their children. But what they don't really want is for their great aunt, Margaret, who's a terribly old fashioned and conservative and very opinionated and, and says all sorts of unpleasant, mean things at family gatherings. Mm-hmm. They don't really want her to know and start, you know, sort of stirring up trouble and so we can we can give some thoughts on how to how to navigate that obviously once you've been open it's difficult to to control where that information ends up but there are you know there are ways to to deflect um deflect a a, a conversation with people that you you know you don't particularly want to go into the into your personal personal most intimate stories of your life uh we don't want to share all of that with it with literally all and sundry so um there are easy ways to deflect uh, that and uh, and we can help people kind of work out what who who they might want to tell and and who they might not want to tell and just finally Nina, before i let you go what advice would you give people coming to the fertility show come Definitely. It is a really great opportunity. Come for as long as you can so that you can really, really get a chance to go and talk at lots of different stands. Make a little list of things that you want to get from the day if you can. Check the website, see who's actually there. Look at the talks and see if there are any specific ones that are aimed at your situation or your particular question. And just you know, make use of that and this great opportunity. So thank you, Nina. And as I've been saying, Nina's details will be in the show notes for this episode, which are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash fertility show 2018. Now, if you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, you can do so in your favourite podcast app that you're hopefully listening to it on. And if you get a chance to rate and review it, thank you, because it just helps other people find it. 
Also, if you visit thefertilitypodcast.com, you can check out some of the other episodes if this is your first one listening, because like I said at the start, I appreciate this is about a UK show. I've covered all sorts of other topics which you can search for in the search box. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm at Fertility Poddy on socials like Twitter and Insta. My Facebook group is just Fertility Podcast. And I've got a closed Facebook group called Talk Fertility, where I'm doing more and more kind of live chats. So it'd be lovely to have you there too. Thank you as always for your support and until the next time.